0: Welcome everybody to this week's Mindful Social. I'm very excited to have Luis Suarez. We started talking on Twitter about employee engagement and it started this whole amazing international conversation with all these different people. And it really sparked a lot in me about how we can make employees happy. And it's so important that we take a mindful approach to how we deal with our employees and what we expect of them. Because if we don't tell them what we expect of them, what are we going to get? Bupkas. So I love, Louise for you to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background.
1: All right. So, well, first of all, thank you for having me here today. i am being looking forward to find an excuse to be here. <laughs> 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 if you don't want me. I've been following the show for a while already. That's so true. a little bit about myself. So my name is Luis Torres. I live in one of the... Um, Canary Islands in Grand Canaria. Um, I used to work for IBM for 17 years in the area of knowledge management, collaboration. And since 2000, I have been involved with social networking for business. So essentially helping employees make sense of social tools at work versus what happens on the external social media and everything else. And I left the company around three years ago. And I'm now half of my own advisory firm, and essentially the same work or very similar work that I used to do for IBM with internal clients and everything else, and now I do it with external clients, whether it's public or private sector. And probably uh, some of the folks who may be watching and also the recording, I'm also known as that crazy weird guy who quitted work email eight years ago and don't use it. Um, I mean, I don't use it. Is it's a fair bit of an extreme, but certainly I'm sort of like receiving right now four emails per week. So wow. to me, it's like a fax, you know, that's how I use the fax. It's maybe once in a month, right? So I kind of like- What's a
0: fax? Um, well,
1: yeah, exactly, what's a fax? <laughs> <laughs> so so the, idea, the idea for me there when, when I quit email eight years ago was to try to prove that it's possible to use all of these social tools to cooperate in our work mm. environment, right? And mm. I left the company like I said for three years ago I thought that I would give it a try and see if, as a freelancer, I could do the same thing. When everyone told me, oh, yeah, you could do that because you're working in a large organization and you've got the tools and everything else, but wait until you join us in the freelancing world and then we will think about it. I said, so, well, I've been three years now, and when I was at the company, I was averaging 16 emails per week, and I'm now doing four per week. Mm-hmm. So there is a life without email, and that's what most people know me for as well. In so let's talk a little bit more on.
0: about that. What yeah. are your secrets to no email?
1: Um, my secret is patience and perseverance. You know, uh, patience because here we are. You know, we haven't been having social tools for so long already. You know, if you look into the first instances of blogs and wikis, date from like the mid-90s. And in most organizations, email still is the king of conversation in terms of how people communicate and how people collaborate. So patients come to me from the point of view of trying to introduce something new, you know, trying to provoke the conversation about, you know, what if there will be an opportunity to make you much more productive, much more effective without going crazy? And we will talk about mindfulness in that context of email because, you know, over the years you get exposed to tons of research about what email does for our brain and it's not pretty. Yeah. <laughs> and that's something that people don't want to say and look into. And perseverance in terms where I've been doing that no email thing now for eight years and um, everyone that I work with and that I collaborate with, they know that I don't use email. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's an opportunity to help them understand how they can use other tools and work with other tools, uh, in this case, digital tools to get their work done. Right? So it requires patience to you know, help people understand how there may be better options and how you need to explain, how you need to enable, how you need to coach people. And perseverance in terms of once you see the light, and believe me, if you start doing no email for a week, you will see the light of what it is. Not using email it's no way back. Right? Mm. And, and that has helped me transform the way I, I work with people and I network with people. Right? And, and it's sort of like an opportunity for me to transform the way we work, whether internally or externally.
0: Right? So do you use uh, direct messaging? Is it are you texting a lot more? How, what are your main channels of communication?
1: Well, my main channels of communication, I, I'd, right now I use three of them, four of them, actually. And I know that people are going to go like, my God. So he gave up email for four tools, that doesn't sound like easier. But right? you use it's them actually, anyway. Yeah, but it's easier in a way that it has allowed me to fragment the way I collaborate. So mm-hmm. it helps me to become more focused versus multitasking. I don't believe in multitasking. It doesn't exist, right? Mm-hmm. We can talk about that if you want to at a later time in, in the uh, Black Webcast. So, um, so I use four main tools. So one of them is, is um, a tool from my former employer from IBM that allows me to keep the data within the European Union because some of the clients that I work with, they say, I need to have my data in the country where I'm working or mm-hmm. in the European, within the European Union realm, especially, you know, regulatory, regulatory industries and everything else, and that's IBM connections. Right. My second tool that I use is Twitter. Twitter is my mm. window to the world. It's how I interact with people. I have built, um, and I actually have done an interesting experiment where, and you know about that because we had chatted about it in the past. I don't follow people on Twitter. Mm. I have them on public lists, and I have open direct messages. So anyone in Twitter, so the 400 million people all can send me a direct message, just like you would do with email right? Mm-hmm. The main difference is that people don't need to know my email address. They only need to know my Twitter handle, which if you do a quick Google search, you will find it because it's my number one social tool that I use.
2: Mm-hmm. Right.
1: And then the third tool that I use, which is more related to um, teamwork, project work, is a Slack. I'm Yay. a crazy fan of Slack. I think yeah,
2: it's,
1: it's transformed the way we work in teams, right? Mm-hmm. And the fourth one is a messaging app called Telegram. I know that everyone is a big fan of WhatsApp, Mm -hmm. Uh, and everyone uses WhatsApp, Uh, probably not in the States as much because you guys have got free text messaging, but over here in Spain, WhatsApp is like religion. It's the god of technology. In fact, uh, uh, two years ago, there was an interesting article in one of the local publications where for the first time ever in Spain, we sent more WhatsApp messages than emails. Mm. That was like, yeah, I won the argument. Bye, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, what, you know? Um, so, so, but you know, lots of people use WhatsApp and mm-hmm. I use actually another application called Telegram, uh, which I really like because it does pretty much the same thing as WhatsApp does, but it allows you to have a lot more control of the conversations that you have with people in terms of, you know, end to end encryption in terms of creating your own channels, self-destructive messages and all sorts of different things, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I quite like it because I can, I, I can use it on my desktop. I can use it on my mobile devices and everything else, right? And, and like I said before, it's very similar to WhatsApp. It's just that for business, I prefer to use Telegram kind of mm. thing, right? So those are the four main tools that I have. Then I have presence in a number of other different social tools like Instagram, like Flickr, my blog and everything else. But for my day-to-day work, those are the four ones that I rely on at mm-hmm. this point.
0: Yeah, I am also a huge Slack fan. It makes a big difference to me, um, just with how we work with our team and how how we integrate. That's a fabulous tool. I use WhatsApp with European clients, uh, uh-huh. but it's really the only time I use it. Um, you know that that works best for me, and Twitter for me is that's my number one network. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, I am not anywhere near no email. i probably at. <laughs> thousand email a day you're kidding me no i'm not it's insane
1: wow okay so so (laughs) i'm gonna i'm gonna change roles here and i'm gonna interview you so how do you keep up with a smiley face with that amount of email volume i filter you filter filter. okay because you must filter really good for having that happy smile
0: (laughs) i still swear a lot a lot because for me you know i'm getting alerts on all of my clients' social networks. So that's okay. all going in different files related to the clients. Uh, some of them I never open, but I use them as archival. So that mm-hmm. goes in. I may not read them. I probably read, oh, maybe 30 emails a day. Okay. And that's the rest fine. of it is information, it's sales, and I would say 85% of it is spam.
1: But here's here's something interesting, and this is something that you know I could – talk for ages about the no email thing now um, when i started the no email thing i had more or less the same number of emails that you have there 30 40 a day which was Mm -hmm. manageable to a certain extent right the problem is when you don't do it regularly when you go on vacation for two three weeks and then you come back and the 30 40 turn into several hundreds that's that's when there's a problem with it, right yeah but the interesting thing is that you mentioned there a type of email that I don't consider email, which is when you have got those alerts and notifications that mm-hmm. come from other systems, like, you know, you come your client's social tools that they use, for instance, right? And you still get them because you want to be notified. Right. And, and if you look into it, they use very similar notion to using an RSS feed reader, right? Mm-hmm. So there are alerts to content that is stored out there. You're using email because you prefer use email as that aggregator, but you could use whatever other field aggregator. So that, to me, is actually not email. And there's a name there for it. It's called Bacon, B-A-C-N, huh. pronounced as in bacon, mm-hmm. right? I'm a big fan of bacon for both yeah, for for like, those reasons.
0: Yeah, you, know? <laughs> you live in Spain, <laughs> you have to love bacon.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, you, you would die if you would love, love bacon here, right? So, So the thing about that notion is that email transforms itself into what it used to be. Back at the beginning in 1971, which was designed originally as a messaging and notification system of content that was stored elsewhere. What happens was that at some point in time, someone decided to include attachments and mime, and that's when we screwed up. Mm. I mean, everyone would tell you that that was when we did the big thing, and that was massive and huge. But that was essentially when we screwed up, because that's when email turned into a repository. Mm. And that's the worst thing that we can do especially for knowledge organizations. And, you know, we're transitioning into organizations where knowledge is the currency. And it saddens me tremendously when I hear about employees that are uh, let go because they may retire or whatever else after 30 years of service. And all of their knowledge, conversations, yeah. networks, and everything else was stored on their mailboxes. And the mm-hmm. first thing the HR does when you leave the company is they delete your mailbox. Mm-hmm. Um, that's sad. And, and it yes. annoys me because for... Companies and organizations that tell you, oh, yeah, we, we thrive in the knowledge of our employees. And I ask them, so what happens when your employees leave? And they say, yeah, look, we delete the mailboxes. I say, yeah, you thrive. Exactly what I was thinking. Mm-hmm. Kind
0: of and some of so- that is because employees don't know how to sort the valuable information out of their email box. And nobody wants to dig through every email to find that valuable information. And I think tagging, you know, I use a client called AirMail and i can mm-hmm. tag e- emails there based on pretty much anything so that helps yeah. me stay organized because nothing i hate more than sorting through a thread of 20 30 messages to find that one piece of information that i need
1: yeah absolutely and and you know the interesting thing is that there are some mail clients that are trying to help with that task of tagging right mm-hmm. and not just tagging but also filtering and selecting what may need to be moved forward. And if you look into it, there are a number of different solutions out there that are trying to bridge the gap between email and the social tool itself. So Slack is doing it, Jive Mm. is doing it, Connections is doing it. And there are a number of different providers in social software for enterprises that they're starting to think, we know that people would not leave email right away, so we need to provide a bridge for them to come over to us. So we mm-hmm. show them how they can interact with email and select some of those key messages, critical knowledge, and then move it into those more sophisticated repositories and then leave communication for, you know, day-to-day kind of thing into what email was yeah. supposed to be, right?
0: And, yeah and, and, and I love that about airmail they They yeah. do that you can tag, you can sort, and it also will give you when you connect your social networks to it it'll give you information about that person yeah. who emailed you, which is always useful because everything with me goes to social
1: yeah because and, and that's essentially what it should be right mm-hmm. I mean if you're trying uh, i mean the, the way we're trying to help organizations understand the new rules of work is that everything becomes a little more open, a little more transparent right yeah. And, it all, you know, it's sort of like a situation where information flies, right? It's not knowledge of stocks, as, as Paul Hegel used to, or sorry, as, as John Hegel used to say, but it was more like knowledge flies, right? So uh, the thing there, the opportunity with all the social tools is that we free up knowledge for other people to reuse it, right? And that's what I really like about the transition that I made from, from email into social tools because all of a sudden I realized that my knowledge was no longer mine. It was mm. my network's knowledge, Right. And, and then people say, yeah, but, you know, what about this mantra, knowledge is power, you know, and, and the more you share your knowledge, the more power that you share. And I said, well, how about if we turn it in and we go and say knowledge shared is power? Because one of the things that I did when I started doing that no email thing eight years ago was that all of a sudden everyone was starting to find out about who I was. Mm -hmm. So I got more visibility, I was more capable of demonstrating my full leadership skills and expertise and the projects that I was working on. I eventually, through my blog, the last 10 years that I was in the company, I came from project to project to project, thanks to my blog, not to my emails, right? And, and eventually, all of the knowledge is exposed out there. So everyone knew who I was. Mm-hmm. Everyone still knows who I am, even though I'm no longer there because all of my content has remained behind, even though I left nearly three years ago. So the idea there is, is how do we transition into that opportunity of how do we expose our work, right? And, and that touches right on into the theme that we discussed about employee engagement in terms of, how do we help employees become more engaged with the work that they do more motivated right Mm -hmm. more involved in a way and to me that was a big aha moment when i realized that all of a sudden i was no longer fighting the corporation i was actually helping everyone become more effective on what they did with my knowledge Mm -hmm. so when they were doing things it would come back to me and say well yeah this comes from lewis you know this presentation is from lewis this particular blog posts from Lewis and we can reuse it because he has shared openly and freely to everyone Other, um, I tell you, if, if, if someone wants to re-engage themselves back into the workforce, back into the work that they do, it's one of the most powerful ways of doing it. It's exposing yourself on what you do and what you're good at and what you, you know, the kind of knowledge that you have that other people will benefit from. And yeah. I found out for myself at the time that email was not cutting it from me. That's why I abandoned it years ago. Right. Yeah, and it's and a way to
0: establish yourself as an expert with a whole different group of people that you have no way of reaching through email, yeah. you know, Absolutely. Including, including you. You know, Absolutely. Um, I sent you a direct message out of the blue, and there we were. But it's really about putting out the persona that you want people to know and that you yeah. want them to know. Yeah. And, and, and,
1: you know, if, if you look, if you look into organizations, one of the things that frustrates most the employees nowadays in the workplace is the fact that they know that someone knows the answer to their problem, but they can't find the person. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so if someone would tell me, so what would be one of the, like, the, the major use case for all these social tools in a corporate environment, right, behind the firewall? I would go, like, finding experts. You know, if your organization is of a certain size where people no longer know each other face-to-face, Right. Finding experts is the number one use case. Maybe answering questions is the number one close to two or whatever between the two of them. But definitely, obviously, if you want to answer your questions, or if you want your, your questions answered, you need to know the experts, right? And to me, that finding experts is key because the more that we expose, the more ourselves, the more visible that we'll become, uh, the more that people will know about what we're good at, and the more people will know whether we can help them or not. And mm-hmm. if we can help them, we will definitely do that. It's our human nature. Uh, But if we cannot help them, we will offer the opportunity to be connected with someone else who might help them. That's the power of networks, right? Mm -hmm. And and that's something that I didn't get from email in terms of of helping me become more effective and productive in the work that I did. And once I could expose how I could, you know, I had had this little game when I was at the company where I had one of the largest networks in there, right? As an example, a short story. And I had like around 4,000 people in my network which was massive for an internal environment. And I always challenge people that I could help them find an expert in whatever the subject matter, in whatever the country, in whatever the business unit, without me not knowing that person. Mm -hmm. And I would challenge them to, you know, I would go and say, I will buy you dinner if I ever fail. Well, in all of the years that I was doing that, I failed once in seven years, and it was someone locally in Madrid who I needed to find and I couldn't find through my networks, and I eventually went to Madrid and paid the dinner. But in all of the other times, I could find that person within five minutes. And I said, you know what? This is what you don't get with email. If I tell you to find me someone within five minutes, anywhere in the company of 600,000 employees, you will not be able to make it. And here I am, in five minutes, there's your expert, right?
0: And the and amount I, of information that you can gain about that expert before you reach out to contact them yeah, through yeah. social, if they're active. Um, yeah, and,
1: and sometimes, sometimes you know, they will tell you that they're, they're not active because they don't want to be busy hmm. or busy are. You know, they, want, they don't want to be busy because they're already experts and they're really busy. But I keep telling I keep telling them and I keep telling them, you know, do you realize that the more visible you are, the more people will know that you work with, uh, the less work you will have? Mm hmm. Because right now, one of the problems that we have with email is that people don't know you. They can't reach you. They don't know what you're doing. So the presumption or the assumption is that you're lazing about thumbing your nails and saying, no, I'm not doing anything. Mm-hmm. Oh, by the way, I want your answer yesterday. That's the perception that we have here about how we use email. Now, if I would use this to sort of tools proactively and tell you what I'm working on, what I'm doing, what are my skills and expertise, I kill right off the I don't know you. Because now I will have the context. Now I will Mm. know who you are, who you hang out with, what kind of content, and then I can ask you the question. And if you're not the right expert, don't worry. I'll find out before that, and I will go to the next expert. Mm. So eventually, it it helps you. I mean, this is one of the things that I keep telling organizations. is, is If anything, there's a use case for uh, social tools behind the firewall is to unleash that human potential. Because everyone knows that the experts are there. They just don't know who they are and how to contact them. And I go, like, that's such a missed opportunity because... We could be doing much better if we would be able to connect all of these dots you know, and create those, those bridges that will help connect the people who seek the answers and those who actually have the answers. Okay? And so, that's essentially what, what networks will, will bring in, in terms of how you can advance your work.
0: So let's switch the conversation a, a tiny bit then, yeah. to once our employees have a better established social presence. They start to become uh, better known for what their expertise is. How is that more How that shift to being more engaged?
1: Mm-hmm. Don't worry. <laughs> Don't worry about that. How come I'm underneath the table and I'm expecting him to go and start parking as well, so don't worry.
0: Three dogs. So
1: Um, Don't worry. Um,
0: How did they, they, once they have established that expertise or started to establish that expertise, how is that going to make them happier and how is it going to improve their relationship with the company at large?
1: Right. So, so... I I sort of came to that aha moment about four years ago when I was at a conference event in Brighton called Meaning Conference. And there was this guy in there called um, Alex Kielroff, and we'll probably include it in the show notes for people to check it out. Uh, He's a guy who lives in Denmark, in Copenhagen. Mm -hmm. And he's got this title, CHO, Chief Happiness Officer. So he works with companies to help them understand how that notion of happiness at work is a real thing. Mm -hmm. Right. And and he gave this absolutely fascinating presentation of around thirty minutes where he talked about employee engagement from the perspective of how do we deal with that notion of happiness at work. And initially he started off with the premise that saying that employee engagement, if you look into it, and, and you know, I know that some people may cringe to the word engagement, switch it over to motivation, involvement. Compromised. I can't care. That's, you know, it's the same thing. It's one the same thing. But he basically mentioned that there are two different reasons to achieve that status, right, of being happy at work, and that was results and relationships. Now, if you look into it, most organizations are relatively good at results, which mm-hmm. is why organizations still survive. They generate certain revenue. They grow and. They keep their shareholders happy and everything else. But if you then look into relationships, we suck at it. The the personal business relationships mantra at work is not there. I mean, I I read an article in the New York Times about three, four months ago that was claiming that we are going through the times when we have the least number of friends at work,
2: Mm. people
1: who we consider friends. So we're working with total strangers. And why do we work with Talk to Strangers? Because we don't work on relationships. You know, as you come to work, you check your stupid email, you clear your stupid email, you do whatever the work you have, and then you move on. We stop talking to people, we stop connecting with people, we stop trusting people because we don't know them, right? So, to your question, this was a bit of background. So, to your question, one of the things when you establish your presence, when you have kind of visibility, when people know what you're good at and everything else, and you start interacting with networks, Is that they help you build those personal relationships right now how is that going to be good for you for me with one key mantra trust i mean i do workshops with with all sorts of various different people right and i ask them what's the main reason why you don't trust people at work right and they tell me well i don't know And I say, I don't know. What do you mean, I don't know? I say, yeah, I don't know them. I say, exactly my point. Mm -hmm. The reason why you don't trust people is because you do not know them. So if you have the chance to networks, to know them, to find out what they do, how good they are, whatever the thing, who they hang out with, what they do in their personal lives, because that matters as well, that's social Mm -hmm. capital, there's a greater chance for you to actually trust that person. So I did this one time for the European Commission this workshop, and I asked that same question, and there was this middle manager who came forward very proud, very cocky, saying, yeah, but I know my employees so well that I don't trust them. And I go like, (laughs) right, um, okay, and and myself, there in a split second, you know, without thinking twice, I said, well, that's a much more fundamental problem that you're having, mister. Mm -hmm. You're just hiring the wrong people because you know them and you don't trust them and you still hire them. So no wonder you have other problems that you have. Mm. So the, main, the, so the main thing wrong. for me, yeah, exactly. So the main thing for me is that through these social networks, we have the ability to fix that issue about relationships.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and, you know, there's one thing that happens with social networks is that you have the opportunity to build a stronger links, to have a stronger sense of belonging. It's, it's very tough. And this is something that I have always challenged people about. It's very tough for you as a knowledge worker in an organization to leave the company where you have got friends because you're in something behind. However, it's very easy if what you leave behind is a whole bunch of different strangers that you have ever heard, like talked to, right? Mm-hmm. So, so for HR, for instance, this is a big moment. It's you know, how do we retain our talent? So, well, improve relationships, which right. is essentially how... You help people motivate themselves back in terms of, hey, I'm working with a really smart group of people who I consider my friends. Mm -hmm. People who I know, people who I can trust, people who I can reuse their knowledge to make myself more effective just like they would do with me, right? And that's one of the things that I keep telling people about, how we need to start bringing that conversation on the table and say, what are we doing to improve relationships at work? Which, to me, is, is the main problem right now. We are scared shitless about... Working through our personal business relationships, right? Because someone has told us that is a taboo word. Because you know, at the moment that you mention relationship, everyone goes like, "I want to have sex with you." So, I'm sorry, but that's not it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's not the whole thing.
1: <laughs> In no <a> work <laughs> Contest is not believe yeah. me. <laughs> so this is more about you know that personal business relationship. And mm-hmm. if you look into 25 years ago, when we used to have this notion about and this mantra about knowledge management, right? There was one little theme within knowledge management that was considered always key, which was social capital, right? The typical chit chat. That's how eventually we build relationships back then, right? Knowing about what people were doing, you know, the people would come on Monday morning to work and we would ask them, so how was your weekend? Did you play Pokemon Go? You know, <laughs> that's a conversation to do, you know? <laughs> it is. So, so the thing is that that's how you actually get to know people because they want to start you all sorts of stories. Then you can start building ties. You're going to start building connections. And like I said before, it's very tough to let your friends go if you decide to move on to the next joint venture or gig or company or whatever else. So to me, at the heart of the matter from the whole thing around networks and, and that happiness at work and that employee engagement is how do we help Organizations understand that they need to foster an environment for building stronger relationships. Right?
0: So, uh, Gail asked a really great question. Uh, what do you think are. of workplaces that offer a mindfulness practice during work hours? And that kind of ties into that holistic environment at work.
1: Yeah. And, and, and I think, you know, workplaces that instigate that kind of mantra about mindfulness at work. I love them and I admire them because right now they're telling me and they're telling us that they're sick and tired of building further on on the cult of busyness, right? Not being effective, not being productive, is about being busy. And that of busyness is, is, I think, how we're destroying people's work lives and perhaps even personal lives.
0: And right? home lives, yeah.
1: Yeah, because it's, it's going to the extenuation where people just think that, you know, I need to keep working, I need to keep working. And if you ask people, you know, how are you doing? The first thing that they tell you, oh, yeah, busy, I hate that. I really hate when people tell me that they're busy because they're telling me, I don't have the time with you, I don't have the time to talk to you, I don't have the time to be in the moment because I need to think about the next thing that I'm going to do, and therefore, peace off, and excuse my French.
2: Mm.
1: No. So those organizations, those workplaces that I start saying we need to live more in the moment and be more mindful about the stuff that we do and then introduce different initiatives. I love that because they're saying something that I find very important as well in this frenzy world that we live in, which is sometimes we need to slow down. Yes. You know, you cannot build relationships with 104 characters in two tweets. No. (laughs) They take time. They take years in the making. And Mm -hmm. I'm probably exaggerating the, the years in the making, right? But they do take time. So what we're... What I really like about, you know, uh, Gail's question there, in terms of those um, um, workplace initiatives about mindfulness, is that we need to have moral virus. We need to showcase moral those. We need to show organizations that those initiatives are taking place, and that as a result of that, employees are happier, are more motivated, are more engaged, because someone has decided to do something perhaps trivial, perhaps, Not really good, but I find it very self-empowering, which is treat people as people, not as assets, not as capital, Mm. not as, you know, handkerchiefs that you can just dispose of when they're old, when they don't have the skills, when whatever, right? So you treat people for what they are, people. Mm. And it's those initiatives that tell me we don't like the counter business. We want to people as people, and we want to hear people's voices and opinions and help them build those relationships. Um, I think that what we need to do as a collective, you know, passionate about these topics, is we need to showcase those companies that are actually doing that and mm-hmm. tell the rest of those who are not that they're still surviving, they're still thriving, they still have the business imperatives being met, and yet they're looking after the well-being of their employees. One of the things that I have noticed in, in all the interactions that I do with the clients and everything else, especially when I talk to HR teams, is that looking after the well-being of the employee is now a thing. Whereas for the last 10, 15, 20, 30 years, it was a taboo topic. No one would care about the employee.
2: Mm-hmm. No
1: one. Just assets. You, know, you can dispose of them when you don't need them. That's why layoffs are still there. right? And now we see how more and more HR teams are saying, hey, we need to start looking after the well-being of the employee because if we don't, there's a percentage of the population especially the younger employees the younger generations and I don't want to put any monikers and names out there because I know that some people may not buy into them the younger generations they expect to they expect organizations to behave in a different way
0: yeah to
1: be more meaningful about what they do and to be more mindful about who they're dealing with in this case themselves as people right right Um. I think I was asking, do, do I know any good examples of companies doing that? Uh, I'm going to buy my tongue and say no. <laughs> <laughs> no I mean, I mean, uh, okay, let me rephrase that. I know a few companies that are doing it, but they are like startup companies. Very mm-hmm. small, very easy to scale in terms of reaching out to the rest of the employee workforce. What I'm talking about is the major big corporations. I don't know of anyone, and I'm hoping that someone can correct me if they listen to the recording, if they're not here in the live session and tell us, "Oh yeah, but my company's doing that because mm-hmm. we may not know about it, right But from yeah. the companies that I know that I have worked with in the large corporate world, I don't know of anyone that has been brave enough not, not just to the initiatives, but to publicize them and communicate them and showcase them out there. To everyone, or for everyone to know. I don't Mm -hmm. know about it, right? So I'm hoping that.
0: There are a few. Okay. Um, Google's a really good example of that, although they do follow the cult of busyness, um, you know, as well as, you know, Facebook and a lot of other groups like that. But Google's made a pretty big deal about changing the way that they do work. And I think it's been driven, as you said, by the millennial um, that they're hiring. They want right. more from their company.
1: So let me, let me say something here about Google, because mm-hmm. I didn't mention it as an example, even though I know that they were doing those initiatives, because on a happiness at work conference in London two years ago, I think it was,
2: mm-hmm.
1: there, there was um, a high-profile Google employee in the UK, I think it was, who was actually showing off that they were using email seven times more than the regular corporation. I'm sorry, that's not mindful you may have your initiative, you may have put a check mark, but if you use seven times more the volume of email that a regular corporation does, mm-hmm. you're not helping your employees fix the stressful situations that they go through every single day, right? This is where I can chime in and say that the, the, there's a lot of scientific research that's been done now about what email is doing to our brains. It's essentially treating us as if, we're, as if we were lab rats that mm-hmm. we can experiment with, and you know the cost of interruptions. I, you know, probably don't need to say much about that, right? But there's, there's this is scientific research, psychological research that is confirming that email has done more evil, more harm to our brains than helping us. So, any organization that shows off that they're seven times more using email than whatever other social tool or whatever, I'm gonna <laughs> have reservations, right? And I mean, <laughs> that's a good point. It may it may work and, and, and don't take me wrong, if they have the initiatives going on and they're lovely, praise them, you know, bless them for that. But hey, this is about going the full board on it, right? Not just put a nice lovely check mark, say, Oh well, yeah, we're doing that and we're mm. having this kind of impact. Ooh. No.
0: Good point. Good point.
1: <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> can fire up with this kind of things you know
0: well that's good though that's the whole point point. and I, I think you're right there is there are a lot of companies that are starting in different right. initiatives finding different ways uh for example i'm seeing a lot more uh, companies using slack-like tools for team mm-hmm. communication which certainly makes it easier um you know to to limit email but you're absolutely right if you're inundating your employees with Stupid, wasteful emails that don't have have good content in them. That's not helping.
1: You know, there's, just to give another example as to the level of how serious the problem is. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I, I don't know. If you may have heard about it in the news already in the news. But there are two countries in Europe, so Germany and France, which are you know big economies, right? Number one and number two of the European Union. By law, they have forbid the use of email after work office hours.
0: I love that. So it's
1: no longer, it's no longer companies doing that. It's the, the, the state saying, rather, we stop p- people using email after work hours or we kill them. So let's not kill them. So that's the state that it has reached, right? And, and you know, everyone says, yeah, but if they're going to stop using email after work office hours, they would go into social networks. I said, yeah, but you notice that when you go and start using social networks after those work office hours, it's more the personal stuff that mm-hmm. they go about. That's why they use, I don't know, Snapchat or Facebook or whatever else for their, you know, friends and family. So it's no longer work. Yeah. You know what I mean, right? So, so what I'm saying with all of this is that somehow we need to help redefine how we're going to work in, in, in a way where we respect people's times. And, and, And this is something that is not happening. And this is why I think, you know, one of the things that networks are really good at and using these social tools is that you decide at all times how you want to engage with whom and when, right? Whereas an email, you no longer have control of that. Everyone, as long as, you know, as soon as people have your email address, you're doomed forever, right? Seriously, you're doomed forever because everyone will know your email address. And unless you change it, everyone will keep coming back keep coming back, right? And in social networks, you can say, stop there, right there. Because this is how I control the flow myself. This is how I work. And if you want to be part of my flow, if you want me be part of your network and help you out, we need to negotiate in here. There's no way to negotiate on email. And that's why I think we need to somehow transform the way people work in organizations because um, I think it is all driven by that kind of business, right? We need to appear Mm -hmm. to be busy because if we don't, we're not doing our jobs no one has no one has to stop thinking you know there's this this very depressing statistic and and graphic and I'm sure you know if people will google it they will find it that we have basically stopped being productive as in the word notion productive since 1980
0: Wow since yeah
1: so um so if we have been wasting nearly 40 years Um, not being longer productive, why the heck are we still working? Mm. And that's because of that notion of busyness. We need Mm -hmm. to appear to be busy, right? Well, how many times
0: have you talked to someone who, you know, and especially, you know, as someone who is uh, an entrepreneur, as both of us are, Mm -hmm. you've got, I've got my East Coast clients. Well, I wake up at 5.30, 6 o'clock to read the emails from them, to let them know that I'm present and paying attention, or I will send. I what's changed is that, you know, with social media, you can schedule those things. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah.
1: and, and not, and not just you. a schedule, not just those schedule those things. There's one, there's one mantra that's been there now for a while. And then it's catching up steam, plenty of steam right now that I really like, which is this notion of working out loud, mm. right? Where, Um, I mean, and it's not something new. You know, Bryce Williams introduced it in 2010. Dave Weiner already talked about narrating your work in 2008. Hmm. So it's not new, right? But essentially what it does is that you proactively expose yourself to your clients, to your business partners, to your colleagues, that you're there, that you're present, that, hey, I just arrived at the office. This is what I'm going to be working on today. These are my tasks, my to-dos, my clients that I'm going to talk about. The stuff that I'm going to be working on, if anyone needs my help, here's where you can find me other the times that you can find me. Mm. That kind of mentality for working aloud is tremendous because then if people would know that, they would know when to interrupt you. Mm-hmm. They would know when to go for you for help. And they would know also when you're doing something else. So they will give you some slack. You know, they will pay you some slack and say, yes, I know that Lewis is busy the Monday morning, so I'm going to reach out to him by the end of the day. Mm-hmm. That works beautiful because yeah. it tells me something very important, which is, I care for your time, because I want you to then care for my time.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: that's when things really happen, yeah. right? In yeah. terms of not expecting that, yeah, I need you to work for me because I'm sending you an email. No, this is, we all have got work to do. We all have got stuff that needs to get done by the end of the day. And if you we compromise, we negotiate how we can help in, in, in between those interruptions, that's when the magic happens. Why? Mm-hmm. Because this is one of the things that I keep telling people around, and it goes right back into the topic of, of mindfulness. If you care for me, I will care for you. Mm-hmm. If you don't care for me, I won't care for you. Right? And this this is really kind of like one of my major traits and skills that I always try to think people about, trying to tell people to think about when they start getting exposed more with their social networks and people start exposing more of themselves, which is use a lot of empathy. Mm -hmm. Be empathic about your colleagues. Put yourself in the shoes of those people who are stressed, who say, I can't deal with all of this work. I cannot, you know, whatever. Have you thought about, well, why is this person so busy? How can I help this person? What would I do if I were this person? Mm -hmm. We're not asking those questions ourselves. We're just thinking. you know, if that person is too busy, they're incompetent because they haven't been able to time manage their time. I oh, thought that's ridiculous. I'm thinking, you know, maybe that person is freaked out, stressed or whatever, because maybe they're doing the stuff that i should be doing because perhaps I'm more qualified to do it, right? Or I could lend a hand there because my workload is not so stressed or so busy. Okay. Mm. I don't think, I, you know, and, and, and I read also this, this other paper at um, one point in time that confirmed that we're living through the least empathic time in our history as human beings. And I felt like, I cannot believe that. I cannot believe that, really. With all of the opportunities that we have to communicate, mm-hmm. to reach out, to make ourselves visible, with all of these social networks, and this is a time when we become the less empathic, what's wrong with us? You know, I keep saying, like, okay, think for a minute. Why did you stop caring for people? I mean, I remember, and and, and this is probably something that you may have seen yourself, right? Back back in the day, I don't know, two, three decades ago, or whatever, uh, when people come to work, they used to care for one another.
2: Mm-hmm. They
1: used to have these team buildings where, for goodness sake, people even knew your family and your friends and who you hang out with and what you were excited about and everything else. So one of the things that I do nowadays is that freaks people a little bit, right, is when I go and talk to someone that I know uh, or someone new that I don't know that I get introduced to is I don't ask, like, how are you doing or how's it going. I go and start the conversation by, like, what did you care about? Mm-hmm. And I pause, you know, and they all go like, what do, you mean? what do I care? So, yeah, what do I care? Why well, do care you care what about? I care about?
0: <laughs> it's usually the and response, not, like, right? Yeah, I
1: know. But the thing <laughs> is, I, I keep telling them, well, if you don't tell me what you care about, how can I care about the stuff that you care?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's that simple, you know, and they go like, oh, no one has asked me that question before. I said, that's the whole point.
0: <laughs> okay, so be <laughs> so prepared people me? if you ever meet Lewis that, you know, you're going to have to be paying attention.
1: <laughs> I would say, you know, what do you care about? But, but you know, here's, here's the thing the behind that question. It gets people to think exactly that. What mm-hmm. do I care for? Why do I come to work every day? Is it because of me, which I, may be a good option because I may have whatever the sick, personal circumstances that I have. Is it because of the work that I do? Is it because of the people that I work with? Mm-hmm. So that tells me an of a glimpse of, you know, what is it that you do that, it sort of like motivates you to come to work back again to that employee engagement right mm-hmm. and one of the things that i realized when asking that question is that i was eventually challenging people to figure out what's your purpose why did you get up in the morning every single day mm. and and you know when someone tells me yeah because i have to work and i go like who says that who says that you have to work so you want to have to pay my bills I say yeah we all have to pay our bills but um, what kind of work are you doing? Mm. You know, is it really the work that you're meant to do? And so, well, you know, it is generally, but sometimes I have to do work that I really don't like. And um, obviously, that, you know, this triggers the conversation with me I so say, like, so why are you doing the work that you don't like doing? I say, so, well, because someone has got to do it. Oh, and you decided to be yourself? How sad, right? right. And, but then already, you know, what it, what it allows me to do is it allows me to challenge in you know, a healthy dialogue. Why do we do the things that we do at work? Why don't we challenge the status quo? Why don't we say, you know, why are we doing the things that we're doing? What can we do to change the things that we're doing right now, in the moment, right? And that obviously, you know, gets people a bit off off guard. Once they start thinking, and I keep that sign in, silence is golden, you know, from that point of view. And, the yeah, you're bringing a very good point. It's, it's helping me rethink exactly what I want to do. I said, well, I don't need the answers. I want you to just think about it. You know, it's it's, it's actually, to me, there was the some exercise that I did that prompted me to leave the company because I felt eventually that I was ready to make the move, mm-hmm. right? Um, and And I had everything. I had a dream job. I had a great salary. I live where I live. I had a great team. And I basically said, hey, is it time for you to move on? Because I can no longer answer the purpose of what I'm doing, what I'm doing. Hmm.
2: Okay.
1: And, and when I said to my manager, I'm ready to move, uh, he said, no, you're not. So what do you mean you're not? I said, of course I'm not. <laughs> so he said, we cannot let you go. you know. And he said, yes, you can let me go. I said, you know, you're asking me oh, to do things that I don't want to do. Because I, I know that I'm not good at.
2: Mm-hmm. I know
1: that I will have a miserable job in six months' time, and I will make everyone's lives miserable. So why should I do that instead of now making the move? Mm-hmm. So I said, I'm gonna you know, save you the headache, save me the headache, and it's time for me to move on, you know? And, uh, if you're asking me to do something that is different than I was, you're basically telling me that the job that you hired me for is done. Yeah. And I said, you know, after 17 years, I think it's time for me to move into other things, right? And, but it was eventually what I realized that um, I wasn't asking enough to myself, enough time, what I was doing for what I was doing, right? And the moment that I started doing that on a more or less frequent basis, that's when I started realizing that I need to do something about it, that I need to make change for me, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I know that, you know, yeah, but people don't change. I said, well, if you provide the right conditions, they will change. But the thing yeah. is that most, most people will tell you that, you know, organizations can change and people can change and say, no, you cannot change people. It needs to come from within. Change starts with oneself. Mm-hmm.
2: Right? Mm-hmm. And what we
1: do is, what we can do is we can provide those conditions for people to be able to make that decision of saying, you know, this is how I want to change and why I want to change. right? Mm-hmm. And this is what pisses me off a little bit from change managers because they're not asking that question. They basically presume that they know better than the people that they work with about what change is. And I get a very heated debates with those change managers because they feel that they know better. And I say, I'm sorry, but you don't know shit about the people that you work with because eventually you never ask them what they want and how they want it and why they want it. So if you don't provide those conditions. Don't be surprised if these social tools initiatives for adoption or adaptation fail, because they fail.
0: But that's the problem with the whole title, change management, (sighs) because you're trying to manage change and not create change. They're totally different things. The whole idea of change management is controlling the company and controlling people and keeping them in their little boxes where as you've just said you know if we just empower employees with the opportunity to say you know what this isn't what i want to do what i want to do is that over there and allow them to innovate and to create and to find their place in the company they won't leave because they don't want to leave
1: exactly exactly the, the thing is i think and you hit, i think that you hit the nail on the head with that really weird, awkward word about control, mm-hmm. right? And and I think that's right, right, you know, right, hitting the head right on the head from the point of view that even though we're using social networks, we're using the social tools, we are starting, pe- start seeing people emerging, there's still these pockets of people who want to control the environment, mm-hmm. who want to control people. I mean, I was earlier on having a, a Twitter conversation with someone, who are saying that social networks are, if anything, another means of control? I go like, come on, please. I mean, when are we going to go and wake up to the reality that control is an illusion that we create ourselves to fit the norm, you know, kind of thing? And when we go into in change management to create those conditions to control whatever happens, right? Mm-hmm. Versus, I like, you know more than control, I like the word influence. You know, it's how do we influence people for them to realize that they need to make a decision about how they want to change the way they work, the way they are, the way how things work, whatever, right? And, and eventually what, what that tells me is backing into that empathy, right? Um, or the empathic self when we go and tell people, you know, here are the conditions that we can present for you. Now it's up to you if you want to go and take that change, right? If you want to make that happen. If you want to make that happen based on what I know from you, based on how we work with one another, whatever, this could happen. But it's you the one who needs to decide if you're gonna make that change or not, right? We cannot we cannot manage change, as you well say. We can facilitate it, yes. maybe. Maybe. But but what I'm really interested in from that whole notion around change management is is how we help people understand that this is not about controlling. If anything, this is about how we unleash the human potential of each and every one of your employees. And mm. I go back to the fundamentals that I always go when I talk to HR. As far as I know, on record, HR teams usually don't hire incompetent jerks.
0: <laughs> At least not so, on purpose.
1: I know, but <laughs> so how do? why do we treat people like incompetent jerks? Mm-hmm. We can trust them. We need to control them. We need to keep them always busy so they don't lazy or goof around or whatever. And eventually we have to keep them as demotivated as possible so that they don't create trouble.
0: Mm-hmm. And God Come forbid on. we should ask them any questions.
1: Yeah, no, because they may fire back. You wow. know, they may have what they call difficult questions for us. That Ideas. <laughs> Ooh, God, it seems that they need to change. You know, I, it's, it's, I think, you know, one of the interesting things that happens with all of this, this notion around social networks—it's how they help us regain our opportunity to have a voice, mm-hmm. right? Uh, a voice—not not just necessarily in sharing who we are, making ourselves visible, but also in, in asking questions. You know, and, and realize that you may ask a question, you may get told off about it. You're not going to get fired. I mean, I, I've one of the things that I learned from that, you know, corporate experience is that unless you screw things up really badly where you make the business lose millions of euros, you will never be able to get fired mm. right? for asking a question.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That's, that's, that's universal law. Right. And and the thing is that we need to help people become more brave and ask those questions. And, and yet, you know, I know that people would say, yeah, but I don't want to appear as, as if I'm, stupid or silly because i ask these silly questions and i go like you know what well, the only silly question is a question that doesn't get asked because mm-hmm. that's the one that you're stuck with so who cares so someone laughs at you for you know you ask a very simple question so well so what that didn't kill you right that well, didn't sort of like embarrass you
0: if you ask great questions then you become the thought leader in the group
1: true but to ask great questions you also need to ask not so great questions true. You need to be better at asking... I mean, you need to get better at asking questions. And for me, at this point, what I have been experiencing is for me to get better at asking questions, I need to keep asking questions. It's practice, right? Yeah. Uh, you won't be able to get... You won't be able to reach being a great questionnaire, if I can say that, by just one question. You can. You need to do tons of it. And some of them, they will be really spot on, and some of them will be, like, really silly or stupid or whatever. So what? I mean, one of the things that I... And this is this goes back into the whole notion of an expert, right? Experts don't ask stupid questions by nature mm-hmm. because they will feel embarrassed by everyone else. And I go and tell them, I'm sorry, but I'm gonna tell you something here that it may be painful, but someone needs to tell you, right? In the work of in the world of networks, there's always, always going to be someone out there who knows more than you do as the expert. Mm-hmm. So your challenge, and I keep always saying this, your challenge is not necessarily whether you know who that person is, because that's an easy way to th- you know find out or whatever. But the challenge for you as an expert is how are you connected to that other expert? Because mm-hmm. if you're right not, if you right now you're not, you're the one with the problem, not them. Because remember, they know more than you do. Right? That kind like of changes the whole dynamic around asking questions, where you help people understand that for as long as there's someone there who knows more than you, whatever the question, it will always need an answer. Right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And well, then people
1: will need to become comfortable that we don't know it all. We don't we're not the experts that we think we are. We know our stuff. you know. We have our experiences. We have our know-how. But uh, we're not the experts that we think we are or that the system or the business thinks we are. Right? In the point.
0: Evolution. That's, it is. it means that you're willing to learn.
1: And that's the biggest problem, that if you look into it, the moment that someone enters an organization, that's the moment they stop learning because mm-hmm. they feel that their job is done,
2: mm-hmm. right?
1: Instead of thinking that learning is a li- you know lifelong learning experience, which is what it should be, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the, how Yaki, a good friend of mine, always says, you know, living life in perpetual beta, so constantly re- learning, constantly iterating, and that's the whole thing behind it, right? The moment that we stop, I keep telling people, the moment that we stop learning, that's the moment that we start dying.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Why? Because it's our, it's, it's our means of survival. Mm-hmm. Is, is by questioning constantly what we know, why we do things, who I'm connected with and for what purpose and everything else. So if I'm not willing to constantly challenge myself on how I learn, I will have a problem. I mean, one of the things, you know, you probably have read and, wrote and written about it all the time. You know, we have got this thing about how technology is going to eat up our jobs and our work, right,
2: mm-hmm. with
1: automation and stuff. I say, yeah, of course, because right now we're not willing to learn. We just basically say, no, I can't learn anything. I don't want to learn anything. But yeah, this machine is going to eat my job. I say, well, maybe it's the time for you to wake up and figure out what do I need to learn to make myself not redundant? Because machines are going to take all of the repetitive work, items or whatever, or tasks that we know machines can do. Mm-hmm. So what are we going to do with ourselves when machines take over? You know, and In a perfect world,
0: to- there's something really great to be able to yeah. do and let those machines do what they do. And that's supposed to be enabling us, but right now we don't let it.
1: And I tell you, I tell you what, this is this is the whole discussion in terms of how um, some people think about machines will replace us. Mm-hmm. And I, I have always said, um, mas- machines will augment us. Mm-hmm. They will augment our human capability. They will free us up to do all the work, whatever the work. The problem is that I think it freaks us out asking the question to ourselves, what could I do that a machine could not do, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And and I don't know, I don't have the answer for that one, even myself, right? That's what I keep asking myself constantly that question. So, you know, the time is coming where I wanted to ask, you know, what can I do that a machine or a robot cannot do? But that's the way for me to say, I need to learn. I need to keep learning. I need to keep moving forward because if I don't, someone is going to do it or mm-hmm. something is going to do it. And I think that, Uh, What we need to do is we need to also think about the social contract of what would we do if we would no longer work, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. How do we feel it? Because right now, if you don't work, you're somehow an outcast in our society. And and I'm saying that in a healthy way, right? Saying like, you know, oh, yeah, I'm looking for a job or I've been employed for 10 years or I'm living in the streets or whatever. You know, those kind of negative connotations, they do have a negative baggage, which is you don't have work. So how mm-hmm. do you keep yourself busy? So the question that I always ask people is, what happens if we wouldn't need to work? What we would do ourselves that idle time? How do we transition from like Homo sapiens to Homo ludens? Which mm. is, I think, I think that's our next path of evolution. That's where I, I see technology fitted in with with, with humans. It's humanizing us with technology. Right? Um, and it's a fascinating topic because we see lots of things that, are not going in that direction. They're going more in to replace the human, like, okay. and I can't care less about the human. Uh, versus, how can I augment the human <laughs> capability? And, and the thing that the other question that comes to mind from that point of view, which I don't think that many people have asked yet, is: oh, those billions of people who are now going to be unemployed, how mm. are we trying to figure out that problem? Right? No
0: one's and, and thinking
1: that, about it yet. I know, and, it's, but it's, you know, the thing is that probably we should start doing that because we're seeing more and more, you know, reading articles or whatever of machines taking over and replacing humans, right? Mm-hmm. And, and yet we haven't figured out what we're going to do with that, right? And, and I think that that goes back into the whole notion of how we need to redefine not only the concept of the workplace, but also the concept of work. Mm-hmm. What is work? I mean, I, I keep one of my... Radical thoughts at the moment is, what if we think that work is a voluntary task that people do as if they were doing photography or as if we're doing writing or as if we're doing just going to the movies or whatever else? And some people say, hey, I love to work because I love to work. Right mm-hmm. now, we do have a percentage of jobs that people do that they do not love. And that's mm-hmm. what I find worrying. Mm-hmm. Right? Because I know a lot of people who would say, you know, plenty of entrepreneurs, that would say, oh, I love the stuff that we do. I, I'd see myself doing this beyond retirement. Well done, because that's the spirit that you will need because machines mm-hmm. will take over everything else. Right? <laughs> when we start thinking about work as a voluntary task, and, and that, that means that we need to somehow start thinking about changing those social contracts because right now it's not happening mm. and, and, and it's coming sooner than we think it is. Think.
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think, you know, we're going to have to come back and have another show on that topic in particular, you know, because oh, I think I there it. is. So much to talk about. Uh, we could go on for a long time. I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's been such a pleasure talking with you, Lewis. And I'm I'm so glad that we connected on Twitter. I encourage everybody to follow him on Twitter. Why don't you let people know how they can find you and where they can communicate with you, especially your blog, which is really pretty great.
1: Thank you. So, so um, on Twitter, I'm elsewhere, Elsua E L S U A, and that's like I said before. is like I said before. It's my front door to the social world, mm-hmm. and um, my blog is elsua.net E L S U A dot net dot e n e t. And um, anyone that wants to, you know, reach out or whatever, I'm happy to keep on the conversation and go on. And thank you for inviting me. Oh, well, sure. such a and pleasure! Great. I loved it. And I look forward to part (laughs) two.
0: Yes, definitely. And just to let everybody know, uh, you can find those links on mindfulsocialmarketing.com. And we will be sharing this on YouTube and also on my podcast on Spreaker. I'd love to have your comments. And, you know, please reach out to us on Twitter and let's extend this conversation.
1: Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Janet.
0: Thank you so much.